While Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. And she poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. So here we have a story that is told both in the book of Mark and the book of John. And in John's gospel, we are told that this person is named Mary, who is the Mary and Martha. Many of you know who Mary and Martha is? She's the Mary of the Mary and Martha, the the ones who, you know, Martha was serving Jesus, and then Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, that Mary and Martha. But Mary was also the sister of Lazarus. Lazarus was the one who had died, and Jesus, in fact, there was there's very few instances where we catch Jesus weeping, right? Jesus weeps over Israel. Jesus weeps when he found that the, his, his cousin, John the Baptist, was killed. He weeps in the garden, and then he weeps over a man by the name of Lazarus, okay? And so this is, uh, as, as we take a look at the scripture, you'll find that Jesus had a real close relationship with Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and he was often in Bethany. In fact, if you read the scriptures, a lot of what happens in the central theme of the story happens at Bethany. Bethany is also the place where the last, where, where Jesus and his disciples come together, you know, where, where they come in and Jesus says, hey, go into the, all the world, preach the gospel, right? And then he goes up into heaven and then the disciples are like looking up in the sky and then the angel goes, hey, why are you caught staring? You're like, why are you looking into the sky? This was in Bethany. Okay. So this is, this is a very significant place in the history of the, the scripture. So when the, when the original Christians would have read uh, while Jesus was at Bethany, they were like, oh, Bethany. Oh, I wonder what story Matthew is going to tell at Bethany. Because we know a lot of cool things happen at Bethany. And this is the story that Matthew tells. And he tells the story of Mary bringing this perfume. Of course, Matthew doesn't tell us what kind it is. We have the other gospels to tell us that it's actually, uh, it's, it's, it's made of it's a funny word, nard. I don't know if anyone ever grew up watching Animaniacs. Any, any, Pinky in the brain. Remember, he'd always go, nard, right? So I don't know if that's what he was saying. But and every time I read that, I think of Pinky going, nard. And like, Pinky, calm down. We must take over the world. Anyways, uh, if you haven't seen it, Google it. It's pretty pretty good stuff. Um, but it's nard. It was a perfume made of a plant cave, nard, or actually it's called spike nard. And it was imported from India. So... If you know anything about geography, India, well, actually here, India, and then Jerusalem is over here. It's pretty far. So it must be what? Imported. So it was obviously very expensive. And and actually, according to historians and Bible scholars, this oil-like fluid extracted from the spikenard plant was approximately a year's worth salary of the average working man. So what is poured out in just a few moments, is equivalent to the average salary of the working man. Now, while Matthew pays attention to the fact that Mary poured this perfume on Jesus' head, uh, John's Gospel would also tell us that Mary poured this perfume on Jesus' feet. In fact, even lowering her hair and wiping the excess oil off of his feet. Now, I I know some people say, see, This is why the Bible sucks. There's all these little contradictions. They can't even get the story straight. Uh, 
you'll find out in just a second. We'll talk about this in a second. That that's actually not a big issue. The fact that Matthew and Mark say Jesus was anointed in the head and John says on the feet. In fact, I'll just share this. One Bible scholar makes notes saying, Matthew and Mark have thematic reasons for referring in particular to Jesus' head. They wish to show that he is being honored, anointed as king. And so they don't leave out that he was anointed elsewhere because it wasn't true. But they're trying to make a point. And this is why we're reading Matthew's account of the anointing, because we're trying to center on this idea of what does it mean for us as those who are followers of Jesus to live as though Jesus is king. And here we have a very clear imagery in the scripture of Jesus taking a moment to bring attention to his disciples that I am the anointed king. And we'll talk more about how this pouring of oil was a symbol of Jesus' kingship. But let's move on. Verse 8. Verse 8 says this. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Indignant. Why this waste, they asked. The uh, the Greek word for uh, how the disciples, disciples felt about this woman was actually the same word used in Mark's gospel to display to explain how the disciples felt when James and John, they were brothers, okay? They're also called the sons of thunder. Um, long story short, they had, a, they had a temper, okay? They had a temper. And so Jesus gave them the nickname, sons of thunder. Um, and they, they often, they were brash. They were brash, you know? It, it, between them and Peter, it was like, like, who's more, <laughs> who's more of a knucklehead? Well, I don't know. It depends on what day it is. Um, but James and John, uh, they just did some stuff. They did, I like them because they actually do stuff that I think, if I were honest with myself, I'd probably do the same thing. And, and one day they, they thought like, hey, it, wouldn't it be great? I don't think anyone has asked Jesus if, you know, when we're in heaven, like, who's going to be with him? Like, because we had, we, we read the Old Testament. He's going to, you know, the, the Son of Man is going to be ascended. He's going to sit on the throne. And, well, who's going to sit on his left and right? And so they ask, it's a very funny story, Mark. They ask Jesus, Jesus, um, hey, quick question. Uh, you do what you want. But if by any chance you were like waiting for someone to ask, could we sit on your right and your left hand when we get to heaven? I mean, we, I'm just saying, I'm just asking, like, you know, I'm just asking. And uh, evidently what happened was the disciples found out about this and the disciples, when they found out about this, they, they, uh, they used, well, well, we'll talk about it later, but the word that they used there is the word that's used here, the indignant, how they felt about James and John asking Jesus if they could sit at the right hand of Jesus. And so that's kind of what's happening here. They're severely annoyed. I don't know how you would have felt, but this is the picture, okay? And so, to this reality, here's what happens. Verse 9. They say, this might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. Now that makes sense, right? But when you read this in the other Gospels, you get a, you get a sense that much of this dialogue is not said directly to Jesus, but amongst themselves or to themselves. And, and, and by the way, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus has a habit of hearing people's thoughts and then exposing them and speaking directly to them. In fact, he did this to the to the Pharisees all the time. The Pharisees would be thinking something in their head, and then Jesus would turn to them and be like, "You, <laughs> you people," and and he would do this all the time. So this is nothing new. 
But John, uh, remember we talked about John. John actually is the only one who gives account for who the actual person is saying this phrase that this might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. He tells us that the person is who? Do you know? Anybody know? Judas. Judas. But it wasn't because he was concerned about the poor. In fact, John says this in John 12, 6. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Okay? So let's just we'll put a pin on that. This is stuff we should know as we, we travel through this. And here's what Jesus had to say to that. Look at verse 10 and 11. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. You will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And Jesus here quotes from a familiar passage that any God-fearing Jew would have grown up reading and knowing. And so when Matt, when Matthew writes, this is what Jesus said, the, the Jews who would have read this have been like, oh, Jesus was quoting from Deuteronomy, which says this, for there will never cease to be the poor in the land. That is why I am commanding you, open your hand willingly to your poor and needy brother in your land. Now, this is, we could go on a whole sidetrack and talk about like what does this verse mean but that's another sermon for another day but what you need to know is that jesus said this he quoted this to remind his disciples that he knew he knew the scripture taught and that his ministry taught over and over again that ministering to the poor is central is central is part of this ministry of god in the world but that while ministering the poor had been a vital part of his ministry, he wanted his disciples to understand that even though it was vital, ministering to the poor was actually not the focal point. It was not the end game. And what was the focus? Well, he tells us, verse 12, by pouring this perfume on my body, she has prepared me for burial. I don't know where you're going. Well, listen, Matthew is communicating two things here. One, he's proving that Jesus is the rightful Messiah King by alluding to the anointing of Jesus' head. As one Bible scholar notes, the most prominent use of oil in the Old Testament, especially when poured over the head, was for the anointing of kings and priests to mark them out for their divinely approved office. So that was the first thing. But the second thing you have to understand was that Matthew was communicating that both Mark and John Uh, do when they quote Jesus saying the same thing, the same thing, was that Jesus really wanted his disciples to understand that his death was not only something that would happen, but it is something that was essential to the gospel. While feeding the poor and all that kind of stuff is important, it's an outflow of the gospel, the main focus of the gospel was actually about Jesus, what he came to do. His death that would come. And later he would talk about his resurrection. In fact, he gives allusion to the fact 
that in verse 13 he says, Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And this is an allusion to the idea that, oh wait, Jesus told us that he's going to die, but if it's going to, gospel is going to go out to the whole world. There's, does that mean it's not the end? His death is not the end. And so, Paul would in fact make this clear in a letter he wrote to the Christians in and around a city called Corinth. This idea that central to the gospel is the death of Jesus, is this idea of Jesus dying he says this, now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the first pastor of Clarity Church, <laughs> anyways, uh, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. He's setting this up. What is this gospel? If you hold to the message I preach to you, unless you believe in vain, in other words, I'm going to tell you what this gospel is primarily about, and if it isn't, well, then you're, you're not really believing anything that's real. You, you might think you're believing in Jesus, but you're not. Verse 3, For I passed on to you as most important. In the Greek, the word there actually means um, most important. Anyways, most important. So what I received, it means what is the most important I received? That Christ died. For our sins. There's a temptation, I think, like, brothers and sisters in Christ, if I could say that, there's a temptation for us to have heard this over and over again, and it is. It is like hearing the solution to one plus one is two. But there's a reason why John would write, you don't know what love is. But here is how you know what love is. God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In our culture, we venerate love as this highest thing And it is. But you need to know what the greatest display of love is. That Jesus died for your sins. Okay, so that was a quick exposition. What do we make of this passage? (laughs) And what are these bags here? Well, you have to forgive me, first of all. This illustration has a lot of middle school ministry energy. I, in fact, I, I think I might have used it. Um, but it makes sense. And so I want to use it. Forgive me, okay? I didn't check the spelling either. So if I spelled a word wrong, um, well, whatever it is. And if you can't see, I'm sorry. So in our life, we all have a temptation to, uh, we have all these compartments in our life, right? Like, for instance, uh, in our life, we have, like, career. We have a, you know, career, right? We, we think in terms of career. Uh, some of us, um, you actually don't think about career enough. You think about this. <laughs> Recreation, right? Recreation. This, the things we do, like, to, to kind of find our center and, you know, like, to relax. And, and then some of us, we, we, um, we, we stress about our career and, be, because we want more time to do recreation, but in order to do that, we have to 
have finances. And so this is another bucket, right? The idea of the, not only the income, but the expense of what we're doing. And this is, this is another good category of our life. And we think in those terms, right? These are kind of priorities in our life. And then, and then there's the other one, right? And this is, we all know that. Relationships, right? Relationships. Relationships. And then, and then if, if we're, if we're followers of Christ, we, we get this extra bucket, this extra basket, which is, um, Jesus. And he's, he's supposed to be important, right? Right? In fact, uh, you'll hear people say, Jesus is, uh, what place? Should be what place in our life? First place in our life. First place in our life, right? And so we kind of do that, right? And then we're like, um, okay, what should be second? Um, uh, you know, uh, my career. Oh, I don't want to be that guy. Um, uh, family first, <laughs> right? And then next, like, what should I put next? What should I put next? Someone just tell me. There's no wrong answer. What? Finances. Yeah, because finances. And then, then they put their career, right? And then we have this, this idea of recreation. And then we, we, we think of our life in this, right? We put God first. And then we have all these other things that we try to get to. Now, this is not bad, per se, but it's an incomplete way to think about Jesus as king. As Jesus as king. And as we'll talk about here in a second, you have to understand that in the Old Testament, for 400 years, the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. You remember this, right? For those of you who watched the Ten Commandments or Disney's Prince of Egypt, right? For 400 years, they were enslaved. They were captive by an unholy people, whatever, right? And then, and then what happened? Moses, God brought Moses and he led them out. And then for 40 years, they wandered around the wilderness. It's a long story. They didn't really do what God said. And so God was like, shame on you. You're not going to see the promised hand, but your kids will keep my promise. But all of you poor people, something happened at Mount Sinai. They worship a golden calf. Anyways, long story. You read it for yourself. But if any of you know the story, there was two things that happened. God's presence with them, and he led them. How? In the wilderness. He led them. Because remember, they were just wandering. So how would they, how, where would they go? How would they know where to go? There was a pillar of fire by night. And then by day, there was what? There was a pillar of cloud. It was like this big cloud. And what would the people of Israel do? They would follow this cloud, this pillar. And they would follow, because they followed God. And then when it stopped... God had specific instructions on how they camp. All right, tribe of Benjamin, you're over here. All right, Gad, boom, you're over here. Asher, boom, all right. Judah, you're over here. They would, they would camp around and leave the center open for what? Tabernacle, which is where the presence of God resides, right? And remember, all, all of this Old Testament stuff is actually very, very important because what God was demonstrating through the people and through the story of, of Israel was what he wanted for us today, which is this idea that God wants to lead us and be before us, but he also wants to be at the center of us. Yes, God leads us, and there's a way to think about, like, yeah, Jesus first. I'm not, like, poo-pooing the whole Jesus first thing. In fact, Jesus himself said, seek what? First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So, I'm not saying like putting God, like my pastor said, seeking first is a no-no. So, you know, we do have God first, but there's something that we miss out when we think this way. Sometimes we, we're like, okay, we took care of the Jesus bucket. Great. 
I went to church, did my Bible study, I prayed. Okay, I'm going to go hang out with my kids, take my wife out on a date, like figuring that out. Okay, all right, my finances, all right, well, I want to... I want to pay for my kids dance and I got to figure that out, you know, and figure it out. And I got, you know, I got to take, I got to, you know, pay for, for college. And, and so I got to figure that out. And, and, you know, well then, and then, and then I have my career. I got to wake up, got to go to my job. I got to figure that out. And, and then, and then, and then like, you know, I mean, it's healthy, mental health, you know, we got to self care. I got to, you got to enjoy, you know, going out and ice fishing with Phil. And that's, that's really, really important because otherwise he won't like me anymore. No, I'll still like you. But the problem is this. Jesus was never meant to be first in the list of priorities. In fact, Jesus was supposed to be the person who is the center. And in fact, therefore, you see the illustration, becomes the person who guides this and who's in this all and who is part of everything. That Jesus is the center because when Jesus is king... He becomes the one that you live, and we don't get this, and we're not, we're not a monarchy, so we don't get this, but the idea of a king meant that we live not only like in servitude to the king, but we actually live for the king. And by the way, Jesus is a good king. He's the king that you would want to live for, that you would want to submit all of life to. Does that make sense? I don't know if that, that helps, but maybe, maybe that's for some of you. Maybe it's just for me. I miss high school ministry. But in our passage of scripture today, we actually catch a glimpse of Jesus teaching his disciples how to live kingdom-centered. In their opinion, Jesus saw what Mary was doing as wasteful. But in the eyes of Jesus, what she did wasn't wasteful. It was noble. It's actually the word kalos, which means this. It also means beautiful. It's precious. Not my precious, like we were talking about. My precious. Okay. Admirable. What she did was beautiful. It was precious. You should admire this. (laughs) And this is what kingdom-centered people who live with Jesus as king, as the center of their lives, do. They live and allow Jesus to define a lot of things of their life. But specifically here in this passage of Scripture, we see that kingdom-centered people allow Jesus to define stewardship. It wasn't that the disciples didn't think honoring Jesus with expensive perfume was less important than helping the poor. It's just that at the moment, despite what they had believed, they chose to live in opposition to the priorities of God's kingdom. They knew what was important. They knew Jesus was king. But in that moment, for some reason, they chose. John tells us that Judas chose to be more interested in himself and what he could get out of it. And I think that's the same of what is true of many people today. I think many people understand what priorities are more important than others, but still live in opposition to them. Like, I've asked this question before in the past, but we all know the answer. I mean, how many of you have ever done something you knew wasn't good for you? How many of you have ever prioritized something that you knew shouldn't be prioritized 
in the order of the priorities of your life. We all have done it. And how many of us believe that relationships are more important than money? Right? I saw, I was like on TikTok or something or whatever. Someone's like, you know, if I said, I give you a million dollars, but your mama died tomorrow, would you take a million dollars? Answer is what? No. Right? What does that tell you? Well, relationships is more important than money. How many of us believe that health is more important than money? But we still choose to prioritize making money despite what the incessant physical demands of not resting does to our bodies. And some of you, you actually, that's the point today. You need to, you need to chill. You need to embrace the recreation bag. Right? But, but we do it anyways. We know. We know that health is more important than money. We're like, oh, but I got to pay the bills. How many believe that trusting God with our finances is more important than making money? Now I'm going to be messing with some of y'all. How many of you believe that trusting God with our resources is more important than making resources? But you still struggle to tithe or even figure out on your own what that means. Maybe you don't agree like with what I think tithing is, but have you wrestled? Have you even bothered wrestling with it? Are you still making excuses? You don't live generously, and on top of it, you want to have a say with how the church uses money. (laughs) And even more audacious, you find yourself being critical of how other people's giving to God is being used for God when you yourself are not even giving to God. We all understand the priorities, but sometimes we don't actually live as if though those priorities were true. And listen, the only power that can save us from this kind of life is found in the submission to Jesus as king. The solution to this isn't get your priorities straight and don't put money over health. Don't put money over... That's not what I'm saying. That's a to-do list. That's still legalism. What I'm saying is submit your life to Jesus because he is the only one. Submit your life to Jesus as king so that through the power of the Holy Spirit that he gives us, he can confront our irresponsibility regarding our resources and regarding and, and really and reveal what actually good stewardship is supposed to look like with your life. Not just with your finances, but with your time. With everything that you have. So kingdom-centered people allow Jesus to define stewardship. And here's the other thing we learned about kingdom-centered people. And I'll be done. I'm running out of time. Kingdom-centered people offer sacrificial worship. Many times when people preach this passage, it's usually on the terms of worship. And that's because this is a very strong passage concerning the kind of worship that Jesus desires. And Jesus praises Mary because of what she gave out of sacrifice. She willingly gave in worship to Jesus something that cost her. (laughs) On the other hand, the disciples were more than willing to judge how something that cost them nothing was not being used and how they would have used it. So you have this situation. A woman who gives a year's worth 
of perfume. Jesus. And then over here you have the so-called followers of Jesus. Who are so busy looking at something they didn't even give. Worship they didn't even give. And we're building opinion and judgments of not only how it was used incorrectly, but how they would have used it. And I think Jesus was looking at them and going, guys, you just don't get it. And when you look at how John reveals what was said about their desire really not being for the poor, but really, they were just trying to sound religious. Oh, this should have been used for the poor. That sounds super good. That's a good answer. Good answer. But Jesus knows our heart. It reminds me of something that Jesus said to the Pharisees who were judging the disciples who didn't wash their hands before eating. He said this, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. It's fake. It's not real. For they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For those of you who remember King David, there's a scenario where David was wanting to offer sacrifices to God in worship. And he was trying to find a threshing floor to do this. It's a specific kind of place where offerings are made. And he finds a man, he finds a man, uh, and, and, he, and he says, hey, would you let me use your threshing floor so I can worship God? And of course, this guy sees King David, he's like, oh my goodness, King David, King David, absolutely, you can use it for, what? For free, for free. And David says something very quite interesting. He says this in 2 Samuel 24, 24, he says this, no, I insist on buying it from you. For a price. For I will not offer to the Lord my burnt offerings that cost me nothing. As one theologian has been popularly quoted as saying, He who has a religion that costs him nothing has a religion that is worth nothing. Nor will any man esteem the ordinances of God if those ordinances cost him nothing. It's, uh, those are old terms, but basically he's saying, neither will you find this. Worship, baptism, communion, the ordinances. You will find those useless. You will go, I don't really need it. If you being a part of it costs you Nothing. To put in simpler terms, worship that costs me nothing is worth nothing. And so the question, yeah, I'm going to leave it here. Um, (laughs) When was the last time that you offered worship to God from a place that could be defined as sacrificial? Like if we are going to make Jesus king, when was the last time that we had offered God something that cost us? I think many times we put him on the list of priorities. We say this is our life 
and Jesus gets this, and then I got to figure out the rest. Well, well, I don't have time for this today. Jesus is gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in love and everlasting mercy. So he'll let me reach back over and take him. He won't get offended. But Jesus wants to be the center of it all. And this costs something. This is hard. Like, I want to let you know, this is hard. But it is worth it. 